we're flying sub treetop level and we see a blue turp. We land, we find this dash. We find it. So uh, the other guys, and it's, it's uh, myself, the other agent, the informant, and eight cops. And the helicopters all take off and leave us there. We were there all night. And then about quarter to 10, one of the sentries empties a magazine in his galley. And then fi- incoming. And I'm thinking, why in the hell aren't you selling shoes? <laughs> but uh, that was the that was the anniversary of my party. Come say goodbye to the nearly, dearly departed. And it was one year later. Welcome to Game of Crimes. You get past the FBI um, talking about the case. This guy's still talking. So continue on from there. What, you know, you tell us about getting the guy. We got a bunch of search warrants, and I had this one uh, trailer that they used to talk about, and I listened to it later. And I didn't catch it at the time because I used to come in even if I wasn't working as a monitor. I'd listen to all the calls because it was my case. And um, he says, "Well, you know, if you got to go in there and somebody's there, just say you got to use the bathroom." Well, that didn't mean anything to me at the time, and it was a trailer. So we ended up doing our search warrants when we accumulated enough evidence. We did a search warrant at the main target's house down in the state he was living in, and uh, we got a cane gun. It was a walking cane that was actually a twelve-gauge shotgun. He's a convicted felon. A B. That's a National Firearms Act weapon. So we indicted him in that in that um, federally in that jurisdiction. That's and, a five year, yeah, minimum five year on that one. He got convicted in a trial. We went to a trial, and he, uh, I think, he got three years. So he's on ice. So that's when I started walking around like to uh, the guy I told you the former kidnapper and says, "I just want you to meet me because you're you're gonna you're gonna be hearing about me." <laughs> and then we just start doing a grand jury investigation. So what possessed you to do that? I mean, that's ballsy. I, I give you credit, but why would you want to announce yourself? Why not like that to this guy? He's going to hear I'm, I'm. I had some fed here asking about you. Well, just because he might say something stupid. I actually did that again in Miami, but we're not there yet. And it worked so well in Miami, it convicted a guy of a three million dollar um, interstate armed robbery. I'll tell you about this story if we get get to it. Um, it it Tr- works. Fact is stranger than fiction, folks. It, it works. I mean, it just it works. I mean, nobody nobody well, expects you to do that, right? And, and you put a little pressure on them, and then you you know the, the thought is maybe they'll do something stupid and incriminate themselves, which they always do. They always he didn't they, say they, anything to incriminate himself, but he said he said I don't know if he told me but somehow not. I found out he had a brother who was just getting ready to get out of prison, and he was involved in it. And we brought the brother in, put him in the grand jury, told him he was going to do dead time if he didn't cooperate. He rolled over. Yeah, you know one of the favorite tricks I learned this too at a. You know, you talk with guys, the best ideas, you know, you get by listening to other people about how they did stuff. But I think it was a federal investigation. It might have been a big one. But what they did is they had a system, a lead system, like what we used to do on big cases. And you would generate lead, like here's lead number 12, here's lead number 15. So you could track each one, get resolution of it. And so he knocked on the door. They were running wiretaps. He knocked on the door and said, hey, you know, my card, he left his card. I want, you know, can you talk to me? I want to talk to you about lead 68. And what does this guy do? He gets on the phone and calls all the other – now they identify all the other co-conspirators. I think it was a big armed robbery case because he's calling and saying, hey, they just called me about lead 68. What should I do? Well, don't tell them anything. You know. Well, thank you. We've just now identified five more people who are uh, part of the conspiracy. So, uh, But no, but it's it, – you, but you got to think – see, the, 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 the thing is real quick is – 
Too many people want to go down to their level and try and beat them at their level. You can't do that. They're good at what they do, but them operating at your level, at, at the level that you're at, that becomes more difficult for criminals, for bad guys, you know, for bad girls. So I like what you're doing there. You're raising the stakes. You're, you're doing psyops. You're, you're doing mind games. It worked. I remember in the state police one time we were on a title uh, wiretap. We call them title threes. And um, this one guy said, do you have any G-R-A-S-S? <laughs> oh, uh, well, I got one. Uh, it's it, it's a, it's just a little 45. I don't have any of the 33s, but I, I got a 45, but it plays for about, uh, I don't know, whatever the price was, 240 or 16 minutes, yeah, or you whatever. Know, I mean, yeah. so, I mean, you know, if you ever watched the movie <laughs> Body Heat with uh, William Hurt and uh, Kathleen Turner, he, uh, we, uh, Mickey Rourke was a arsonist. And um, William Hurt was an attorney who had an affair going on with Kath- with Kathleen Turner, and he was going to burn his place down. And he's trying to get some his buddy, who he represented, that's the arsonist, to help him get some device to blow it or burn it down. And Mickey Rourke tells him, "Counselor, there's 150 different ways of getting caught. If you can think of 125 of them, you're a genius." Or whatever. I don't think the numbers are right, but it was something like yeah. that. Where there's yeah. so many different ways of getting caught, you, you, you're going to do it. Yeah. Especially mm-hmm. with these types of historical conspiracy cases. So ultimately, Because it's already done. They can't go back and change what's already happened. That's a great thing about historical conspiracies. It's there. You just got to dig it up and find it. Well, whenever I taught it, I would always say, look, how many burglars are caught in people's houses? Not very many. Very I few. Say, but they, very start, few. they start finding your your property. They start look for witnesses. They look, you know, they use You go evidence. to the pawn shops and sell exactly. it. Yeah. We'll and and that's really what a historical drug conspiracy is, is doing the same technique. It isn't as glamorous. You're not pulling your gun out, throwing the handcuffs on, and then the music is playing and the curtains are falling as you walk on to the next, uh, to the next exciting. And it's all done adventure. within an hour. Every case is solved within an hour, just like on TV. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's not the way it is. I mean, you have to want to do this. And to me, the satisfaction was in catching those people that, that had previously that always had gotten away with it. For, well, look, we just got through one of our buddies. Uh, we can never say his last name, but we call him Zach. But, you know, him and his team, you know, went after Victor Boot, the merchant of death, because they were told he was untouchable. They couldn't get him. And then oh, is that the they one get him. About, and now is that the one they're talking about? Trading, yeah. trading. Brittany Griner for. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But uh, Zach wrote a great op-ed. I think it was in USA Today and stuff about why you just – it's not about the human part of it. It's about you don't set the precedent that it's okay to kidnap somebody who commits a minor infraction to trade them for somebody who's a global arms trafficker responsible for for 6 million deaths. But that whole thing started as a hold my beer. Can you guys get him? Because somebody else couldn't get him, another agency I won't mention, including the Brits. The Brits couldn't get him. But the reason I say all of that – is I want to start uh, kind of you know setting the stage for is that when you when you start working these cases and stuff right it's not sexy but it, the tough work has to be done so let's talk about now going from Baltimore um, what possessed you then to start talking about going to Columbia you know international work because you got to learn Spanish and let me ask you a question first did you know any Spanish before you went to language school when I went to language school at thirty four years of old years of age the only Spanish word I knew was Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> and donde Espanos and uno más cerveza. Let me, let me tell you, that was, that was, I had a headache every day of that five months of language school. And they kept putting me like in the, in the 
special class. <laughs> I just wasn't. I mean, when I graduated, they had it right on. Is this is this uh, student recommended for whatever higher international level? posting or whatever? Not not just plain no. Hell no. <laughs> they said no. I mean, I did the best I could and I got through it. But uh, you know, I mean, I I just I'd never been exposed to any why why did you want to go in why why did you want to go international um you know what 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 made you change you know obviously you wanted anything to get out of baltimore county right anything to get out of baltimore not, not, i mean i didn't hate it in baltimore at all i mean i, I love the cases we were we were making and the stuff we were getting to do i was only on a job uh well i got started agent school in january in july of that year i got in a shooting in a hotel room in new jersey on a on a um, very large marijuana importation that came through the um, uh, Dutch, French, St. Martin, and then up to Philly. And uh, this guy went for a gun in the room and the agent next to me shot him. Um, he didn't die. He ended up cooperating. But um, it was just exciting. I mean, all this stuff and, and everything was coming from Colombia. And, and, and uh, I, I just I wanted to I wanted to branch out and do more. I didn't want to spend my whole career in Baltimore. Did you get to pick Columbia, or did you have to go through language school and then apply? Because uh, I mean, no, I know- no, you uh, you had to be selected first because okay. they put spend a lot of money for your training. Um, and I, I I think I tried the first time for Milan. I thought that'd be cool to learn, maybe learn Italian, Italian, and, you know, and learn about yeah. wine and wine pairings. And I guess they thought that was funny because I didn't come <laughs> anywhere near that. <laughs> well, then I says, well, heck, Barranquilla can't be too bad. I look at a map; it's right on the Caribbean. I like to fish. I dive. And all that. And they said, oh, we got one answer to go to Barakia. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got that. And, and Tom O'Grady helped me. And I, you know, it was just time for an adventure, for a change. And they had my my party the, the night after language school and all that right before I left. I know I'm, we got, I'm digressing a little bit. Uh, they, they themed my party, come say goodbye to the nearly, dearly departed as he takes off to the land of coffee and coke. <laughs> and then one year to the day of that party, I had something pretty significant happen to me in Colombia. And I'll, I'll tell you about that when we get to it. All right. Well, now let's talk about going to Barranquilla then. So you you do language school, you survive it. You can barely, I mean, you, you now can say Taco Bell with a Spanish accent. So, <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I, and they gave me another hundred hours when I got there. Um, and so, you know, I went to Barranquilla and, and I guess the one thing that I, I don't know why I was so naive, but I hadn't anticipated is the level of official corruption and hey, dishonesty that existed. And before we get into too much of that, what tell us kind of let's book in this. What what year did you end up? What you know, if you remember month, but you know, when did you arrive in Barranquilla? July nineteen eighty six. Did you ever heard of Pablo Escobar by that time? Oh, he was there. Oh yeah, he was around. All of them were around. Carlos later had been. Uh, take it to the States right before I got there uh, by a friend of mine, Tommy Biggins, who's no longer, he died mm-hmm. uh, young, 60 years age. Great guy. He was yeah. in Miami with me too. He was in my class. He was a great guy and he passed away. Um, so he, they were there. Uh, there are a lot of the cities we weren't allowed to go to. It was, it was a pretty tough time then. They weren't extraditing anyone from Columbia to the States at that point after that. Uh, Pablo got sent up, not Pablo, uh, um, Carlos later sent to the States. He had to ended up being a, a witness in Noriega. Mm-hmm. And um, so they were all there. I mean, the showers were kind of quiet because that was after the um, the, the uh, Spanish incident. But Pablo Escobar wasn't quiet. He wasn't quite as, he got a lot crazier after I left and when, well, like when Steve was there. But when, uh, when you were there, Lenny, he wasn't that nuts. What, what all cities did DEA have offices in at that time? Well, they closed most of them down. We were in Barranquilla and Bogota. 
that was it. But previously they were in Cali and, and Medellin. Cali and Medellin. Yeah. And Barranquilla. And then they closed those down because it was just too dangerous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You couldn't, sure. take, you, you couldn't take any children. They wouldn't allow us. I, I wasn't married. I was single. Um, so I didn't have any kids, so it didn't matter to me. But you couldn't take kids there. That's how, uh, how it was then. Well, so, um, but you get down there. What are the, what are the nature, what's the nature of the work you start doing once you get down there? Uh, mostly liaison with the police. You would do that. And then there'd be requests that would come in from the states and you try to help them. And pretty frequently you'd have informants that would get into some difficulty there. Uh, usually pilots. They were very big in those days on arresting anyone that landed a plane without prior authorization or approval. I wrote on what it is they had to get. And then we would go see them in prison and try to negotiate to get them to get them released so they could continue what they were doing. So we'd have stuff like that, and we'd have leads from the states, and then we'd go on operations with the uh, with the Colombians. Um, now, were you working them. with the the national police, the local police? Yes. Okay. Colombian national police, and uh, we would go on different, like the one in particular. One of them was uh, like, for instance, uh, we got tips that there was a, a large marijuana stash. And this is the one I was referring to earlier, just to give you an example. Uh, and we would go out, we'd ride with the cops and look for it, see what we could find in the helicopters. And then we'd come back and, and write a report. And we'd get tips like that. So the one in particular I was talking about, it was supposed to be a big marijuana um, stash and a, near a landing strip. And it came from an agent in Bogota who had an informant. So they assigned me to go with him. So we go up in the helicopters and we're in different helicopters in the morning. And I'm flying around with these older Colombians and these helicopters. I could almost could see the land. We were so high up. Then we're out about an hour and a half and they have to fly all the way back in 40 minutes because they have to have lunch. So we go back and we have lunch. And I knew what's going on here. Whatever it was, was not supposed to be found. Mm -hmm. So in the afternoon, they put us in a different helicopter with a young guy who just got out of helicopter school. That's not a comfortable we're feeling. Sub, we're flying sub treetop level and we see a blue turp. We land, we find a stash. We find it. So uh, the other guys, and it's, it's um, myself, the other agent, the informant, and eight cops. And the helicopters all take off and leave us there. We were there all night. And then about quarter to 10, one of the sentries empties a magazine in his galley and then incoming. And I'm thinking, why the hell aren't you selling shoes? <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, that was the that was the anniversary of my party. Come say goodbye to the nearly, dearly departed. And it was one year later. Well, talk about you said empty a magazine. So explain what was going on there with that guy. There, Well, he was our sentry. We're, we're laying on these uh, marijuana bales and in the area where they had. And we're staying there, and reinforcements are walking in the middle of the night. And we're there. And uh, we got a hell of a rain there for a while, and then uh, and then it was just quiet. And then about quarter to ten, um, these guys were coming in to do to do us harm. But when they questioned about it, because – and the cop wasn't awake, wasn't asleep, and there was just enough moonlight through the jungle that he saw him. And he emptied his, uh, his magazine, and then everybody – and they fired back, you know, incoming. And then nothing for the rest of the night. And we stayed there. All I had was a nine millimeter pistol and um, ammunition. And we stayed there for the remainder of the night until the morning. And our our um, reinforcements walked out 20 or 25 kilometers. And they got there right at dawn. And then we went over there where this happened. And we found footprints in the mud full of blood. You got a few and of I them. Actually, 
uh, yeah, uh, and I actually got to testify to all this, and I had made a videotape of it, and uh, the videotape, the original, was put into evidence. There was a guy named El Mono Abeo, and El it was his, supposedly, yeah. this was supposedly his stuff, and he was on trial in Oklahoma, and I went out, and I testified in his trial, and my original copy of my personal video that I made of this whole area got put into evidence. You know, the, where there should have been some blood or the sorry bastards who just left you hanging out there. Why, what possessed them to just leave you there? I don't know. My personal opinion. And they I, were I paid off to any, leave uh, you there, weren't they? That, well, I'm thinking that's, that's what I'm thinking. That wasn't supposed to be found. Well, after that happened, uh, what they were telling us in the office in Barranquilla is that El Mono put a coffin in the back of a pickup truck and had him drive around the police station for a whole day. He's a piece of so work. He was, I think, the, I think he was the last one that was extradited. So I, I may have misspoke earlier when I said about the date of the extraditions when I first got there, because I'd been there a year at that point, and he he got extradited after that. So the thing was, they paid them to to leave you there accidentally, thinking that this force that's coming in is going to kill you guys, and therefore nobody knows what's uh, nobody knows what's there. Or I mean, you're already there. People know you're there. How you know? What's the point? I don't know. Um, maybe it's just because they didn't want to leave the helicopters there. It wasn't dark yet. There was plenty of time left. I don't know. I don't know. Nobody asked me that I want to stay there, and I, we just got stuck there. Were you the only green You didn't have a change of underwear? I mean, nothing. How's a guy supposed to survive in the jungle like this? Please. I ate mangoes for two days. I hadn't eaten a mango since. All I ate was mangoes. Mangoes and water. It was good. <laughs> Were you the only gringo out there? Uh, one other, yeah, other agent was a gringo. Who was, who was the other agent? Bob... Um, the heck is his last name? He's from originally from uh, California. Yeah, not that it matters. Uh, Bob, uh, he went to Alaska. I can't remember his last name. I'll think of it. If I think of it, I'll let you know. He went to Alaska after. Everybody's got a mango story and a tequila story. Never drink tequila again. <laughs> yeah, I never liked tequila much. <laughs> Steve did. Oh, <laughs> Down in Columbia. They, did you, hey, Steve, when you were in Columbia, did you ever have a taste of Tres Esquinas? Oh, yeah. That and aguardiente. They drink that and... stuff by the fifty-five gallon drum, which cost about ten dollars. Oh shit! <laughs> so, I mean, but, uh, oh god, yeah, that stuff is like lightning. I was going to give, I was going to give uh, GP Javier Pena. I was going to give him a complimentary bottle of aguardiente, and he just basically had the full body shakes. Oh, and stuff. oh they, yeah. Oh, Tres Esquinas is a rum. Aguardiente is what is what I, would yeah. Meant, I meant. Yeah, yeah. Tr- aguardiente is what they all drink. T- Tres Esquinas was this rum, and you you could have used it for jet fuel. It was terrible. Oh, it was, yeah, it was. I, and I've I've told this story before, Lanny, but uh, Javier and I would when we were chasing Escobar, we'd go out with the cops there and and you know sitting there doing shots of aguardiente, and they would chase chase it with orange soda, and that was just too sweet. So we were chasing it with beer, and then we all went to stand <laughs> up, and, and Javier I just fell out on the sidewalk. <laughs> the cops were sitting there laughing at us. You could get a bottle of Stoshanaya vodka at the um, little smuggler area, free trade area that was overlooked for like five bucks. If you wanted to get a bottle of wine at that time, uh, it, it would be like twenty-five or thirty dollars just for a bottle of wine. Yeah. I mean, so drank a lot of vodka. I started talking with a Russian accent for a while. <laughs> <but, though. laughs> we started calling you Com- Comrade Lenny, like like a, yeah, you know, you go. Leonid Brezhnev, you know. Yeah. yeah. All right, Comrade Brezhnev. So now we talk. So, uh, but so this that's your big. Well, yeah, fortunately, you survived the mango. We're going to refer to that now as the mango incident. So you you survived the mango incident. So, um, but only two years was that because your rotation was up, or what? What was the it was deal? A two, it was a it was a two year tour, and uh, and I didn't. 
uh, things started going downhill after that. We we got uh, evacuated twice. And when I say evacuated, it's just like in a movie. All right, burn everything you can, pack what you can. Planes coming in from Panama, you're, you're out of there by four o'clock. Twice that started happening. The first time uh, they were going to shoot uh, laws ro- rockets at the at our office in the consulate. And if you were in Bogota, this is the mentality. In Bogota, our embassy was like a virtual fortress. The old ones, Steve. Mm-hmm. Were you any the old one or the new one? The old one. You the old one? Yeah. Well, we I went down there one time uh, for something. I remember what it was for. And that night, I was staying with some agents. Or I had a hotel, but I was we eating dinner at the agent's house. They shot a Laws rocket at the old embassy. Yeah, the, the mark is still on the wall. And it did go off. Is it? Yeah. yeah. It, it, well, I was I was down there when that happened. Yeah, it kind of it kind of dug a little hole in the side of the concrete, but that was all it did. But then after that, stuff just started getting worse with the threats. Now you go. They had a three hundred, I think, approximately two or three hundred man, private security force, Marine guards, all that. You go an hour away in the same country to where we were, and if you ever saw, if you go to one of those little places like a, a um, you see them on television, they have that big long bar, and you could. It has a weight on it. You push it down, it goes up, and then you lift it, it pulls mm-hmm. it down. Mm-hmm. Just a single bar, nothing else. No fences, nothing, just a bar. That's what we had. We were in a shopping center, and we had that, and we had uh, a handful of uh, security guards, and that was it. Well, you remember when we were in Miami together at the same time down there, the, the Achoas put the thread out against DEA Miami, and so they put ropes around the, our park, the DEA parking lot. We called them the Achoa-proof ropes. <laughs> That's all <Yeah>. it was. <laughs> Oh, one time I was with Henry Cuervo and uh, and I forget who else, and we pulled in Henry's car and Henry's talking on one of those brick cell phones. Mm-hmm. And we pull into my to our office lot in Miami. He puts the phone under the seat. We then go in, and the next thing we hear there's a chase going on, and Vito and uh, Bob Voge, if you remember him, yeah. Rob Voge, yep. got it, chased his car. They had broken broke into Henry's car with a, with a spark plug and and took the phone, and they chased him all the way down to thirty to. Uh, Way down there to whatever, 836, and they ended up wrecking the car and they got them. Jeez. Well, I mean, there was no security at all. You know, more anywhere. There was, uh, we had, there were cameras on the parking lots. And if, if the people monitoring base radio happened to see suspicious vehicles out there, or if agents came pulling in, it looked like somebody was doing surveillance on the lot, then they would just put out a little call and you get agents from every group and you put your vest on and take a machine gun out there. And we would just inundate whoever was out there with force. To find out what they were doing there. I mean, you, you you pretty much had to protect yourself. Well, you know, my thought is just get up top with a 50 caliber machine gun and just stitch a line, you know, the, the line of death. You know, here you go. You know, Sends feel a message, free. You cross it? this one. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Sends a message. <laughs> yes, it does. I, I want one of those new laser guns they're developing. I got one. You want one? Well, you know, the new one, you don't have any ammo issues because, you know, ammo is tough to find. It's expensive. So if you have a laser, you don't need any of that. There you go. But you do need power, and it takes a lot of power. So <laughs> I'm not sure the Colombian grid is capable of supporting multiple uh, energy weapons. So, But we, you know what? We'll see. Hey, do you remember when the new embassy was built down there? I uh, I don't. I went down there during, was it Nor- Noriega or something I went down there for, and it was built in. I don't. I just don't remember. I left in '94, and they were talking about it. And then I went back probably in 2010, and it was already built. Yeah, I don't know. I'd say late yeah, late 1900s, early 2000. Yeah, because um, I think it was. I think it was that time because I was actually down working on Plan Columbia, and at that time I didn't know it, but JP and I were out of the embassy at the same time. We just we were crossing in the hallway, you know, didn't know each other. But I think that was the new embassy. But that one was more like look like 
concrete gray, you know, just, um, um, the old the old one was intimidating. In fact, in the show Narcos, when they show uh, the the two actors playing Javier and I going into the embassy, that's actually the old embassy. They got permission to film there for one day, and the new embassy is this huge walled-in compound that even the Marine guards live on embassy grounds now, where before they lived out in public. Yeah, post one man, it's a great place. But let's let's talk about that. So things went south uh, literally in Barranquilla. So um, other than that incident like that. Was the majority of your time just really just providing support, running down leads, you know, liaisoning, uh, liaising? That would be accurate. Yeah, that would be accurate. Yes. Did that? Did that? I mean, did that kind of not meet your expectations? Were you thinking it was going to be more? You're out there in the case, out you know, in, in the field working cases with these guys. No, no, I, I won't say that I was uh, disillusioned over it. I really didn't know what to expect because I, I really didn't have any experience in that in that area. Um, the only thing that, I mean, I, I figured they were doing their best. They just needed more help and I wanted to be part of that help. I, I never envisioned the amount of corruption that existed. Um, I remember one time uh, I had a copy of the extradition list and one of the cops, our liaison is in there and he says, oh, can I have a copy of that too? Because that way I can look for it. Well, it's not, it wasn't classified. It wasn't secret. It's just a list of who we want. I mean, it's public knowledge of who we've, you know, officially asked for. So I asked my boss. He said, no problem. So I gave it to him and uh, didn't think any more of it. And we were, we had lent him one of our armored vehicles because their, um, their vehicle was out of commission for some reason. Week or two later, we get a phone call. Another three-letter agency had an informant in a house in uh, Columbia, and he was going around selling copies of the extradition list and showing showing the traffickers where the armor was on our cars. Gotta love them. And that was, yeah. So I, I went in there with a really great attitude and came out of there with, I wanted to turn the place into glass. So... Well, you kind of you kind of got the opportunity, not so much with that, but um, with Panama. So let's kind of start setting the stage then for uh, General Manuel, the unfortunate-looking general, as I say, Noriega. Um, and let's start talking about how you got involved with this thing. So let's start setting context for you know Noriega, because I will tell you, episode two, we got the last interview with George Young, and he talked about losing what was it, Steve, sixty-three million dollars. Yep. Nor- right. Noriega nationalized the banks and he overnight he Is that lost George Jung you're talking about the yeah. uh, trafficker they made the movie on yeah. oh okay that's yeah. cool he was gonna look at your your uh your Wait, this is a requirement every guest is supposed to listen to every episode and have made notes so that they can contribute to the conversation and here you are Lenny uh you know what may a coupon on that one oh uh, well <laughs> I have to plead guilty because I you know I'm not I'm kind of technically challenged for the most part um and I, I didn't even know about your uh your pods till Steve called me. So, oh well, man, now, now, now you, I do. Now you do, and there, <laughs> there will be a test. Well, I watched, I watched all your stuff on Narco, Steve. There you go. Come on, and it's all true. <laughs> yeah, it's all you need. Yeah, I thought it was very well done. Murph shooting carrier pigeons, you know, out in the woods. Yes, somebody had to I do it. I actually went. I went dove hunting one time when I was in Bogota, and I got to go out and uh, one of the other agents. Says, oh my God, you can't wear camo. The only people wear camo is the FARC. Oh, all right. So I had to go up and change. And we went um, we went dove hunting and it was great. There's no, like, oh, no great. ice. So instead, no you rolls, put on Hunter's Safety Orange so that you can become a huge target. Yeah. Now you can green. wear green. Green, green, green was right. okay at the time. Well, let's start, let's start setting context for the unfortunate looking general, uh, Manuel Noriega. So, 
you know, when did you start getting involved in this case? You know, after did it start down in Barranquilla because you were so close to Panama? No, not not really. Um, you'd think that those, those, even though Panama was so close, it could have been a world away because we just didn't didn't act with any of the other countries. We were so busy where we were. One time, I was going to go fly up to Panama and go fishing uh, with one of the guys who was in the office up there, and I couldn't get a. They wouldn't give me a visa because I was in country with a black passport. And um, black passport yeah, is part a of, part diplomatic of the passport. Diplomatic passport. So they wouldn't. Uh, they would not give me a visa to go to Panama. And that's when the stuff, the sable rattling started between Panama and the uh, and the states. I guess a little bit. But I, I really, I was very, really occupied with Colombia. So um, uh, in July of '88, I left in late June. Um, and in July '88, I reported to the Miami office. And I guess I was there a few months, just getting. Uh, settled in, find a place to live, doing all that stuff. And then Ken Kennedy, God rest his soul, he was our ASAC and he's gone now. He died, unfortunately, very young. He knew Tom O'Grady, my old boss in, in Maryland, and he knew that I, you know, had a bit of experience in historical conspiracy cases. And Noriega was basically a historical conspiracy case. So they said, well, we want to redo the case. We, you know, Noriega was in Panama. We were here. Would you get involved? So I said, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's what I like to do. I said, it's not, you know, I didn't start the case. So, I mean, there's other people that should get credit. And the, the guy that actually started it, Danny Moritz, he ended up transferring and he wasn't there anymore. And then um, a guy named Steve Greeley was, uh, was assigned to it. He was a relatively young agent. So they asked me to get in on it. So I got in on it and um, we started making plans how we were going to look at the witnesses, look at the testimony, look at the evidence and take it from there. And then um, Christmas came. And while I'm home in Maryland visiting my parents, the invasion took place, December uh, 1989. And I guess I've been there a little over a year in, in Miami when that happened. And, uh, and I came back to Miami. I think I came back a little early. And I went to Panama and I spent, uh, gosh, I was there probably, I don't know, three weeks a month. Got embedded with a SEAL team on one mission and uh, was there and then uh, in the embassy. And then after all that, came back and we started working. And we and we, and we re did redo everything. Um, we only used one of the original witnesses that was used for the indictment. And Dick Gregory was the AUSA who had indicted it, but he had left the office and was uh, working as a state attorney at the time. And then Pat Sullivan was brought in and Pat uh, was a, he came with a building in Miami. He was 40 years, I think, he spent in Miami. He's just a fantastic guy. <laughs> he I mean, was. He's, he's my mentor. So was Dick. They're both my mentors. And and as an attorney, uh, Pat was the lead attorney on Noriega. He and I tried, tried a bunch of cases together when I was in AUSA. No, no, no. See, no, hold on. See, now you're getting too far ahead. Now you're I'm getting throwing, okay, now you're right, throwing okay. attorney in there with agent. <laughs> okay. And like you say, only if, if when you're an attorney and the agent, you get to clear yourself in any shooting, right? Yeah, so we're now, not going to prosecute, you know, when, when you were, in so I hadn't been to law school yet. I hadn't been to law school. None of that yet. That wasn't even uh, really on the agenda. So we spent about three years putting the Noriega case together. I traveled all over the place, France twice. What were you putting Switzerland. So, when you say you were putting it together? So the invasion happens because Noriega, they want to extradite him, right? At that point, they've got indictments on him. That's correct. 
let, let's talk about the indictments for a second because he was indicted on a lot of stuff. And like we're saying, you know, George George complained because, and I would too. It was illegal money, but he, you lose sixty three million dollars, you might kind of be pissed a little That'd bit. Make you cry, wouldn't looking. it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> make yeah. you cry. He nationalized a lot of stuff. By the way, he was uh, doing so much money laundering. Not only was he a DEA informant, and I need you to explain that to me, Lenny. He was also taking, I think it was ten percent of everything that was uh, deposited in the banks for laundering. So this guy was making millions a month, you know, doing this kind You're of talking stuff. talking about Noriega. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about, did you work any of the case at all that led up to his indictment or did you work it after uh, he was uh, arrested after the invasion? Well, I, I started it before the invasion. He had already been indicted. The indictment happened while I was in Colombia, and I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And, um, and so when I went down for the invasion, I was running to some DEA personnel, senior guys, that were down there in like in the uh, share hotel room with one of them. And they were complaining about it. I said, now it's been done. This is terrible. What makes DEA look horrible and all that? And I'm like, looking at myself, what is this about? And, you know, I, I never did quite figure out why so many people thought he was such a good guy because he would take money from anybody that would give it to him. He was playing all the ends against him. Anyway, to ask your question, I kind of digressed. I started working on it then and we were, we had some outlines. I was looking at the stuff and getting everything organized when Christmas came and, and we'd had the break and we were going to get into it hot and heavy in January. Well, we didn't know about the invasion. No reason, reason we needed to know. And then that happened. And then shortly thereafter, of course, Noriega is here. So then it, be, it became apparent that we had to get moving quickly. So really after the invasion is when the re-evaluation of the indictment and everything connected to it began in earnest. Well, let's let's before we go, let me ask you a question because that was at that point I think that's almost an unprecedented step. We are now sending military forces into a sovereign country to arrest a dude who's obviously the head of the country. Uh, is there another case where that had ever been done before? I'm I'm not familiar. Uh, it, there may have been and I'm just not familiar with it. But it was actually more than just him having criminal charges. They were killing Americans right and mm -hmm. left down there. Yeah. Um, In fact, I if, remember if, one. Uh, uh, and you may know this, Lenny, um, and I know this from some of the uh, SEALs and, and Delta Force people we worked with. But one of their first operations when they hit the city of uh, Panama City during that invasion was to go to that prison and, and release that American that had been held there for months and months and months. I can't remember his name now. And the reason I remember it so much is is one of the operators that we worked with in, in the, against Escobar during his escape was missing a few toes on, on his foot, on one of his feet. And, you know, and of course, you get to know these guys when you're there together 18 months and, and finally comes up. It's like, what the heck happened to your foot? And he was the guy that carried the American out of the jail cell. I mean, the guy was so weak, he couldn't stand up, couldn't walk, physically carries him out, lays him on the helicopter as the helicopter's taken off. There's a little wind shear that pushes it back down, and the skid on the helicopter hit right on top of his foot and cost him two or three toes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just a side story there. It has nothing to do with anything. But Well, no, um, but it's but it's amazing. When we start getting guests on or we start talking about this stuff, how many points people have in common? I mean, you know, before we got on the, the podcast, it's like we I didn't know how many degrees of separation there were between us other than Murph. And, uh, you know, he doesn't count. Because uh, he, because he, he's a hillbilly man. The you know family tree's vertical anyway, so there are no degrees of separation in the Murphy family. That's okay. But 
so it's amazing, you know, when we start talking to everybody, everybody's connected by one to two degrees of separation. In other words, mm -hmm. you think you're at all these places, but when you get talking, you knew this guy or we were here at the cross paths at the same time. So, you know, as we're talking, it's amazing to see just even between you two, the fact is that we've had you on, you know, Murph, we did him and JP. We had Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell, which, you know, those guys came in and worked the Cali cartel after Pablo. So, and then we start looking at where's you're connected to, you know, Jerry Boykin, you know, you were talking about him. He's down there with Delta, you mentioned in Navy, so SEALs. So mm -hmm. anyway, I don't know what point I was making other than to make the point is that there's a lot of points that we connect on these podcasts. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it really truly is. is a small world. I mean, it, it's amazing. And in and, and DEA, this might have been the case with you, Lenny, when you're a young agent, you'd go to your boss and say, hey, boss, I'm looking at this case. This is the target. This is the plan, blah, blah, blah. And your boss would sit there and he'd think about it and he'd say, Listen, okay, you got ties to L.A. Go call Joe Blow in L.A. and call this person down in Colombia and Paul, call this person over in Russia. And, and they're giving you all these contacts. And, and after that happens for you know a couple of years, you're like, how the hell do you know all these people? Well, then you, you through your investigations of traveling the world, and especially when you spend time in headquarters, you come out and now you're the guy that all the junior agents are coming up. Hey, I'm thinking about running a case over here. Okay, you need to call this guy over there and that guy. And, it's, and, and we're not that big of an agency to start with. But you've got contacts all around the freaking world. It's just, it's amazing. That's true. It's amazing. Yeah. You do. You do have people all over the world. Even today. I mean, I've been going a, a long while, but I still know people in a bunch of different places. And uh, and it just, it's, it, it is a small world. And uh, it's amazing. Well, there's what you know and who you know. And who you know sometimes is more important than what you know. And if you're working and you're traveling and you're doing things, you're going to develop your own network. Yep. I mean, I, during Noriega, I went to Paris and I'm picking up my luggage and here's a guy next to me picking up luggage that made a suit for me in Mexico, like <laughs> not even a year before. Wow. It was a, a suit maker. He did it for everybody in the embassy down there. And I, and it's like, wow. I mean, I, you know, run, you just run into people. Absolutely. You don't even know why you run into them. You know, I was, I was just talking and I haven't even told Morgan this yet, I don't think, but I was just talking to uh, an active agent over in Canberra, Australia. And we're going to see if we can get some Australian and New Zealand cops onto the podcast here. Um, and it's just, you know, that you can pick up, you can pick up your phone and you can, on WhatsApp, you can contact somebody on the other side of the world and they're like, oh yeah, whatever you need, man, we're going to take care of you. Now that you got to love that. Yeah. Yeah. You do. Well, technology has shrunk the world. So, uh, now, now, now that we've had our technology discussion, uh, <laughs> now as we get back to Noriega, Who? um, so you said you started, you know, the unfortunate looking general, Mr. Pockmark himself. Um, when you started working this, you said you got involved right beforehand. So when you said there were Americans being killed left and right, what was happening to them? Was this as the result of what Noriega was doing, crime in general? What was going on? Yes. Uh, one incident that, um, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney who had, they ended up becoming a magistrate, but at the time he was a, a major in the reserves, Marine Reserves, was talking with some people and related an incident to me. And I think this did occur too. I think I, I think I recall reading it, some something of not official in the government, but on, online or whatever, that they had a busload of guys that went past one of the gates, one of the bases, I believe it was an Air Force base, and killed one of the guards, shot AK-47s out of the window. And what they didn't realize is right down the road, was an M60 emplacement, and they zippered up that bus pretty good and whacked a lot of them. And they were doing incursions nightly. Uh, my AUSA buddy was telling me because he was talking to people. He was, you know, still in. He just was in the reserves. That they were they were uh, testing the the perimeters and, and making incursions into our bases. And during the trial, what I learned one of the things is they couldn't they couldn't move the families 
out of some of the housing because we had a base that we shared with the Panamanians and the housing was right there. Noriega put a bunch of tanks up there and had the tanks in front of the housing parked with the cannons aiming up, not at the houses, but sitting right there by the housing. So if they had taken the families out of there, it would have warned him mm-hmm. what we were doing. Did you did you work with Rene Delacova down there, who was the DEA boss? I I afterward I knew him. I he's one of the guys I was going to go fishing with mm. when I was in uh, in Bar- Barranquilla. I knew Rene, and then I met him. Actually, met him in earnest when I got to Miami. He was here at the time. Yeah, and if if our listeners want to see a picture of him, he's the famous picture of Noriega being escorted onto the back of the American jet or flight that was going to bring him back to the United States, the guy in the DEA jacket, that's Rene Delacova. And Omar Aliman was with him. Yeah, that's right. I remember Omar. He was from, an agent in Miami, uh, Miami for many, many years and was in training. Yeah. Yeah. My under, my understanding was, is that they played um, a lot of uh, Andy Williams songs to get him to surrender. Well, one of the favorite ones they were playing was I Fought the Law and the Law oh, One." No, I was serious, though. That, that was part of the psychological ops. He wouldn't come out once they had him surrounded. They had these huge loudspeakers just blasting music 24-7 from a psychological yeah, standpoint yeah. just to disrupt him. Well, wouldn't that make you surrender? Uh, you know, I like Andy Williams, but <laughs> not 24 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. Just, just as long as you don't play Nickelback. Um, that is a joke for some of the modern generation. Friends don't let friends listen to Nickelback. Anyway, I digress, but I don't even know what it is. <laughs> see, that's why I said the modern generation, you know, we're, we're talking Lawrence Welk with you here, Lenny. We're talking, you know, now look at them over there with Bobby and Anita. They're yeah. very good. Yeah. You know, Bar- Barry White, Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah. Bob Seger. Yeah. No, we can do Bob Seger. I, I tell you, turn the page. One of the great songs he did. I love that one. Um, but let's let's talk about that again. So, but they were killing people. Um, what was the tipping point in your mind? Uh, you know, from what you remember, what was the tipping point to say, okay, look, enough of this asshole. We're sending in the military. It was just the escalating violence directed at Americans uh, and and military people, and he was destabilizing the area. And and uh, President Bush, and he's wanted too. So I think that it was a conglomerate of situations that uh, that went into the decision to do what we did. And I was really glad we did. I thought it was, I was very proud of what we did. I know you don't have all the charges memorized, but just kind of give us the high level of a lot of the stuff that he was indicted for. I believe it was 10 counts to the indictment, and he was convicted of eight of them. And it was your general conspiracy to import, importation, conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute, conspiracy to distribute. Uh, no, I don't remember any, uh, all of them at all. Um, and I was there every day for the trial. And we put together a nice case. And if you notice, you didn't hear anything about it afterward. There was no, you know, after the fact media interest in trying to, you know, blast what the government did because they never had anything. Because we did we did it the way it was supposed to be done. One of my assignments was to handle the press every day. And I remember telling this guy from Miami Herald one morning. I said, excuse me, but what the hell courtroom were you in yesterday? Because what I just read in this paper is not what happened here yesterday. Well, I have an editor. You know, I I don't have the, the, I just can't put whatever I want. It has to get edited. I said, well, that's not what happened. What courtroom were you in? And that used to happen a lot. It did. And um, Judge Hoover was the presiding judge. He's no longer with us either. 
he was just, he's just a wonderful man. And when I got to Miami, I used to get him all the time for cases. And he ultimately, when it was all over, said and done, he swore me into the bar, especially brought me into his courtroom, swore me into the bar. Very nice. That, that's a, that's a, couple a nice years honor. Later, it was. It was very much of an honor for me. And I was just absolutely uh, very lucky to have that he agreed to do that. They used to call me Mr. Evans' name. So he's given you an exhibit number and taken away your name. I told the evidence. <laughs> yeah, that's Johnny Rogers giving you a number and taking away secret agent man, by the way. Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah, that's right. But you the, know, the, during, the guys, the, during the Noriega trial, I had brought a Colombian captain up, um, Carlos, I uh, can't remember his last name now. But anyway, we were up to talk to some informants and so forth there in Miami. And, uh, you know, while you're there, they want to go on their shopping trips and so forth. And, and you ask them what it is they'd like to see and take them sightseeing. And what the captain wanted to see was, you know, he said, you think there's any chance we could get in the courthouse and see uh, Noriega from Panama? And you guys were on trial. So we came up there and talked to the marshals and told them who we were and who the captain was. And you guys had just were coming back in from your lunch break. The judge hadn't come back in. The jury wasn't in. But the, one of the deputy marshals escorted us through the courtroom so that we could see Pineapple Face sitting behind the defendant table there. And I, what I remember behind the prosecutor's table was like a sea of boxes that were all opened that had numbers on them that contained all That's the documentary exhibits. evidence. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, how are you going to find anything? And then I found out what your responsibilities were, and I'm thinking, holy cow. That I think Steve was sitting at the prosecutor's table when you were handling the evidence. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I did all the evidence. Oh yeah. my gosh! I, what the evidence, man. And I also had my witnesses. I had my witnesses I had to deal with too. Oh, well, let's I, let's talk about the process of going through that because um, th this is obviously high profile. Um, you know, it, it's it it's it's a, a criminal case along with a military uh, operation to remove him. What were you under any kind of pressure from bosses, higher ups, in terms of like? Um, you know, I, I didn't know how high profile this was because you know, every case is going to get pressure. Was there anything different about this case that caused unique pressures or did you handle it just like any other case? I mean, this guy was the leader of a sovereign country at one point and now he's in U.S. custody. That's doesn't happen often. Well, from my standpoint, it wasn't any different than any other major case we had. Nobody ever once said, well, this better happen, that better happen. Or, you know, don't do this, don't do that. I, that just didn't happen. Um, not to me. I mean, I was a GS 13, which is a journeyman level and I wasn't a boss, but, uh, I never, it, it, it was done just the way any other case is done. But, How did you, but you know it? what? We had a reputation in DEA of doing every case that way that, I mean, when, we t when DEA took people to trial in federal court, their butts went to prison. That's correct. So, how did you end up on this case in the first place? There had to be a lot of DEA agents in Miami. So how did you draw the short straw or, you know, the ugly straw in the case of Noriega? Ken Kennedy knew my boss in, in Baltimore, Tommy O'Grady, who I really love Tommy Which, a lot. You said who? Ted Kennedy? Kennedy. Ken, Ken Kennedy was Oh, Ken Kennedy. Assistant. I thought you said like Ted Ken Kennedy, Kennedy. The, the senator. And Ken Kennedy, Irishman born on St. Patrick's Day, God rest his soul. Um, he was the number two boss above me. And I, there was a there was a first line supervisor and then it was Ken. Ken was in charge of a group of them. And he, I mean, I did historical conspiracies. That's just what I've always had been doing. And he asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, well, sure. Yeah, if you want me to, sure. I mean, it's a nice case. There's plenty of work here to do. And um, it 
it was it was a good experience, and I spent almost you know, about three years, roughly. Well, let's talk about that because you talked about traveling to some far flung places. I almost couldn't say that. I'm still recovering. Far flung places. So, what what were you when you were going out there? How extensive was his network of money laundering and contacts? How far out were you going? What are, what are some of the countries? Noriega wasn't, in my opinion, was not an organizer. He wasn't anything but a guy who was taking advantage of the fact that he was the de facto ruler of Panama. He just took money. He didn't care who gave it to him. CIA, DEA, <clears throat> CIA, DEA, um, Cuba, whoever. He did, I mean, he just wanted money and he didn't really care where it came from. It wasn't like he had a network of people that he was directing to do things. He, he took money from a lot of people. He was just a greedy places. little bastard. Yeah. I had a, a witness in Noriega, just to give you an example, American guy from Texas <clears throat> who was doing time. He was indicted and uh, convicted in Tampa. And uh, he could have been on the board of directors of a Fortune 500 company. He was so smart. And he set up a pretty large marijuana trafficking empire. And somehow or another, I don't recall now, <clears throat> he got hooked into Noriega. So I remember him telling me, he was one of my witnesses, um, said, the first time I went in to meet Noriega, I gave Noriega a zero, zero Halliburton briefcase with 300 and some thousand dollars in it. And that was going to be, I like you, I'd like to get to know you and be your friend gift. So he gave it to him and Noriega took it. And the next thing you know, this guy who didn't speak a word of Spanish, was American, received a Panamanian diplomatic passport. <laughs> Jeez. So. And just to show you how this historic conspiracy kind of stuff works, when uh, Steve was his first name, when he got arrested and indicted, he wrote Noriega a letter out of a spiral notebook. He then had his secretary translate it into Spanish and send it to Noriega. And Steve, being the organized guy that he was, he kept that spiral notebook. After he was arrested, it was seized. And let me guess. Through the magic of DEA, you found the writing on the notebook. The Army found it in Noriega's house in his safe. They found the letter in English, the translated version, and it matched up forensically to the spiral notebook that was taken from, from Steve when he was arrested. There you go. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty good evidence. <laughs> yeah. And he's testifying, so that sort of leads credibility to what he's telling you is the truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff we had. And I'll tell you that one of the, in my personal opinion, one of the best witnesses we had was Carlos Slater. <clears throat> Carlos Slater's there. And first of all, he speaks perfect English. And Frank Rubino, who is a former Secret Service, is the Noriega's defense attorney, was named Frank Rubino, former Secret Service agent, for Miami, former Miami Beach cop. Frank's not stupid. Frank's a very smart guy and a good lawyer. Frank says, Mr. Slater. How much cocaine are you responsible for bringing into the United States? How much cocaine are you responsible for coming into our nation, ending up in our communities, near our schools and our children and our families? And Carl Slater spoke perfectly. She sits back at me and looks over to Mr. Nor to, uh, and he says, well, Mr. Rubino, was that with or without the assistance of your client? <laughs> <laughs> that, now, that's a great a little answer. Bit later, <laughs> a little bit later, Frank says, and uh, Carlos kept referring to Noriega as Officer Noriega. And so 
Francis. Mr. Later, why do you keep referring to the general as Officer Noriega when you know he's a general in the company? Carlos sits back a second, leans over, and he goes, well, Mr. Rubino, you have to understand something. To myself and all the other members of the Medellin cartel, Noriega was just another cop we were paying off. We didn't care what his rank was. Oh, jeez. That's fantastic. And, see, and you being a lawyer, you know, that he violated one of the first rules of <laughs> being a defense lawyer is you never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Yeah. Yeah, true. But uh, we had some good witnesses. Um, another one of the – we had two other witnesses that, that we didn't ever count it on. <clears throat> one of them, I get a phone call from an agent in Bogota, and I knew him. And he says, hey, we got an informant was in a house down here. You got some guy with an S that was indicted in Noriega? I go, yeah, Roberto Steiner. He goes, well, he's from the uh, Department of Aliman, which is a means German and Spanish, and it's, it's in Colombia. And he goes, and his last name is Stridinger. And he's bragging about the stupid Panamanian and couldn't pronounce his name. And he's in Miami. He used to be Pablo Escobar's uh, aviation guy. That's what I was told. So I said, well, where does he live? He lives in Nixon's old winter White House. No kidding. Well, he did. <laughs> he owned it. When the movie Scarface came out with Michelle Pfeiffer, when she's going up and down in the elevator, that was his house. And it was Nixon's old winter White House. Um, a Canadian bought it knocked it down and put up this this mansion and it was right next door to bb rebozo and uh, and we ended up arresting strange i'll tell you how that happened and bb rebozo came over that day and met with us while we were in there searching the house well anyway stranger and he was there he was in miami at that time or was going to miami so i told the bosses and you know how bosses are steve and dea i said if you just leave me alone and he's over there i'll find him just leave me alone mm -hmm. And uh, they did. And I went over there. The first thing I did was I checked with Miami-Dade police to see if they ever had any calls for police service there. Well, lo and behold, lucky us, his son, Stranger's son, had been killed a couple of years before in a jet ski accident. Ran to a um, uh, bulkhead or some rocks and, uh, and got killed. Accident. It was horrible. The detective that handled it was now like a lieutenant or a captain. I forget what he was. And he was in charge of the of the... Key Biscayne contingent of Miami-Dade police. And DEA and Miami-Dade always work very well together. So I called him, and he was so much help. It wasn't even funny. And we looked at the house. We're figuring options because we only have one shot. There was no extradition with Columbia at the time, and he had a go-fast boat out uh, tied up next to the helicopter landing pad that's in the back of that that was left over from Nixon's days. So we knew we had to get him. Then I get another call. I says, well, he's out on his boat. He just called somebody from a cell phone from the boat. He's heading in now. So we were already over there. So I called the lieutenant and he was, uh, he was off, but he said, I'll be, I'll be there as soon as I can. And I had a Mountie with me who had met him. It was that we had Mounties assigned in Miami. And I just talked to him the other day and this whole thing ended up, uh, I was just uh, filmed for by a company up in Canada for something they want to put together for Narcos North. I think they call it anyway. So, so Kim is with me and we're looking at the guy and he says, oh man, he goes, one minute, because he had a hat on, Stranger had a hat on. He goes, I'm 80, 20, I'm 70, 30, I don't know. And if we didn't get him, I knew we'd never get him. And there's no extradition, he'd be lost. Well, ultimately, 
the captain gets there and I said, he has a uniform. I said, shake hands with him. If it's him, if it's not, I'll do it. He goes over and he starts shaking hands and he's grabbing him and talking to him. And we went over and arrested him and he rolled right over, rolled right over. Uh, and he's the first witness we had that physically put Noriega in Colombia with the cartel. Wow. And he testified. Who did, who did Noriega meet with uh, in Colombia? When you said he met with the cartel, which cartel are we talking about? The Medellin cartel. And, you know, Carlos later said he met him. So, I mean, uh, uh, I don't recall the particulars of the meeting at this point. But uh, Stranger, he, he – uh, and he got sentenced. He pled guilty. He got sentenced. And, um, and we forfeited the house. And uh, it was the money went back into the treasury. So on that alone, I didn't cost DEA any money or the government taxpayers for my entire career. It was the amount of money that thing was worth. It was on the market for $10 million then. Um, he was trying to sell it. But he bought it after that movie Scarface came out with Al Pacino. Uh, right after that, he bought it. And, um, and that was that for him. And sort of as a part of that, we found there was another – and he was he was indicted under the name of Roberto Steiner and the Panamanian that identified him was also a pilot. He just couldn't pronounce Stridinger. And then we found another pilot, and I don't recall his name now. I want to say it was Ortiz, but I'm not sure. He was in France doing time for getting caught in Guadeloupe with a load of dope. So we went over – a bunch of us went over to Paris twice, and and we got him to uh, to roll over, and he came over. And Noriega actually put his arm around um, this guy, this witness who was doing a 15-year sentence in France and told him, don't ever mention you saw me. That would be like putting a, putting a picture in my name in the Miami Herald. And he came and he was a pilot for the cartel as well, and he testified. And those are witnesses we didn't have in the beginning that we developed later. How many How many witnesses do you think you guys had down there for that trial, just for this one trial? I'd just be guessing. Um, I don't know, another case I had, the Bowie Boys, I can tell you, but I, I, I just don't remember, Steve. You think it was as many as 100? I don't think it was that high. And how long did Things the, went a little slower. How long did the trial with last? Noriega? Well, uh, Judge Hoover had a medical condition, so it really went, the trial itself was about five months, but we had about a month off, so it would have been a six-month total span of time. Roughly, I mean, I, I don't know exactly, um, but I know he had some health issues that, that caused us to take a hiatus for a little while. You know, and, and for our listeners, I mean, it, it, you got to understand that you are you're on high alert that entire time sitting in the courtroom because you never know when the attorney's going to say something or the prosecutor's going to turn around or the judge is going to ask you a question directly, and you want to present yourself professionally in front of the jury. Uh, it's and doing that for five months. Holy cow, that's a long damn. Time. Well, I mean. But like you said, we had American soldiers that were killed. We had uh, a lot invested in this, and we had to do a good job. I mean, and um, we took all, all of us took it very seriously. We had a whole group of people involved with this, and everybody contributed, and everybody worked hard. Well, at that time, that would have been one of the highest-profile cases DEA had gone at that particular moment, right? I believe so. Absolutely. Yeah, I believe so. One of one of them. There were several around the world. Not to take, you know, steal anybody else's thunder, but it was certainly an important case, and I was very proud to be part of it. Well, there was no trial for Pablo, Steve. Huh? Yeah, there was no trial for Pablo. I mean, you 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 lucked out, man. No trial for Pablo. He's room temperature when you showed up. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, well, look, hey, I I don't feel bad about uh, being smartass about him because 
the number of people he killed and what Popeye did and what, you know, this guy was trying to, yeah, he deserves to be dead. But anyway, the, the, here's the, here's the one, um, number I'm interested in. How long was the jury out? I don't remember. I'm going to say close to a week, maybe. Okay. Wow. That long. If I remember, I mean, I, I could be totally wrong. I'm just, I just don't remember. It's been, you know, a lot has happened. A lot of water's gone under the bridge since then. I, I remember it was several days only because I was carrying around champagne and a cooler in the back of my car for a couple of days. Figured either, either, either we're going to be crying in it or we're going to be tears of joy it. or tears of uh, sadness. Yeah. Now, yeah. Are you, that was, you know, all those, well over three years worth of our lives, all of us. Are you admitting to carrying alcohol in a G car? Oh no, not the G car. It was in my personal car. Oh, come on now. The statute limitation run out. You can tell us. No, no, no. I would never care. I never would do that in a G car. No, it was my personal car. You can trust me. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> there you go. I was going to hold off. Okay. No. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, you can trust me. I'm a lawyer. You know, I, I get. By, by, by the way, only a lawyer can write a hundred page document and call it a brief. So yeah. I leave you with that. And uh, so. Well, you see, the other thing people don't realize, too, not only was it three years, but then then in addition to that, the trial, you're really not – you worked one case for three years, and then you're in court for six months, basically. So it's very hard to do that and do your other work. But in between a lot of this stuff, you decided to go to law school. When did that happen? Well, I, I actually decided it being in the court. I always liked the court. I always – Ever since I was a trooper, I always enjoyed the process. And a lot of it used to irritate me. Some of the lawyers would irritate me. I couldn't talk at sentencings. And I mean, a lot of things I said, well, damn it. I mean, if they did it, why don't I give it? A I already took the LSAT once. So during Noriega, towards the latter part of the trial, I decided to do it again. So I quietly arranged for a prep course for the LSAT. I took the prep course and then I took the LSAT again. And... Um, did okay. And then, um, I got into the university of Miami, uh, for the night program. Good school. And, uh, Noriega was sentenced in June. And I believe I started law school in August, the day that, uh, hurricane Andrew hit August 92, I was supposed to start that Monday and Sunday or Saturday or Sunday, whatever it was, is when Andrew hit. So they, so that was made things a lot more difficult. Um, so how was but, it? So how did you work your cases and go to law school at the same time? Because you may not be in Miami all the time. You might be, you know, going somewhere. Well, I mean, the cases I had then were just local. I mean, uh, if I had to go, I mean, I just didn't, I worked it out the best I could. I was going, I remember I would drive my own car back and forth because then one coming after me for using their car to work. And then I used the government car for work. And then I'd use my car to go to school at night. And Kenny, Ken Kennedy took care of me for a while. I had some issues with some people in DEA about it later on, but I was able to get through it. And um, Did you tell them I'm a lawyer? Give me two years and I'm going to sue your ass? No, no, I didn't do anything like that. <laughs> you know, they could transfer me. I mean, I don't want to get transferred. Yeah, I, you I could be in Iowa or Alaska. It. Yeah. yeah it's funny because I had an FBI guy with me and we were very good friends and, and they did everything they could to help him. DEA, again, I mean, if DEA wanted you to have a law degree, they would have issued you one. There you go. Graduation, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of the way, you know, Steve can tell you, that's kind of the mentality. Um, well, and the guy you and, keep talking about, the ASAC, Ken Kennedy, was beloved by every agent in the entire division. Oh, we my had, God. He was just, well, we, we had a couple hundred agents in Miami back during that time. Oh, easy. 300, maybe? Yeah, he was, a, he was an agent's agent. Everybody loved the guy. 
and he just he was just a good person too. I mean, just he really was. a great guy. Yeah. And uh, well, let's talk about going to law school. So, how long did that little um, little exercise take you? Uh, August 1992, and I graduated in December of 1995. That's not bad. Yeah, I mean, that's a oh, I went full time. I didn't have a life. I was single. I had no life. I just uh, I studied. And vacations were taken to study for exams. And I'm not that smart, so I had to work a lot harder. Uh, believe me. Um, but I liked it. I mean, I, boy, what what a lesson it was for me. You know, I felt like I'd been around the block a few times. I lived in South America. Been in some life death, you know, situations. Yada yada yada. And I met people in that night school that this really humbled me. We had two surgeons in there. Really? Them were older than me. Yeah, two of them. One was a vascular surgeon. The other one was a plastic surgeon. They said, look, you know, the only thing I really like is surgery. And I'm, and I'm, I'm old. I think they were 50 then. And I was 40, uh, 40. And he says, you know, and I'm going to do it. Not once did they ever have any kind of an ego that they were already medical doctors. One went to Duke and the other one went to University of Pennsylvania. So, I mean, they, yeah, some Penn, credentials. Yeah. University of Pennsylvania or Penn State, Penn, whatever that, whichever one that is. And they were both great guys. And I mean, just down to earth people and just wonderful. We had, um, what else we had? We had uh, a lady that was a warden of a prison was in there. We had uh, we, myself and the FBI agent. We were the only two uh, FBI types in there. And we had people from all walks of life. And um, one of my classes, I found out years later, Marco Rubio was in one of my uh, commercial law classes in the second or third year. But I didn't, I, so many people in one of those classes, I just never got to meet him. Yeah. I didn't know him. So, I mean, it was, it was a great experience. So you're a DEA agent. Now you pass the bar, you get sworn in, you said by Judge Hoovler. Um, what's it like now to be a DEA agent and a lawyer at the same time? Well, from the time I was about on the job for about three years, I'd be a backup supervisor after I'd reached my 13. And I was a backup supervisor all the way to the point where I passed the bar. <laughs> I never had another. Um, Karen Cobell did, if you remember him. He was one supervisor. I have. He was a great guy. Yeah. Then he moved me out of his group to another group. And not, I never had another supervisor that wanted me to be the relief supervisor. When Even though I, you know, I wasn't in school or anything. But the only thing I did differently was I went to law school. And none of them ever wanted me to be the relief supervisor. So I didn't. I just worked my cases. And just did things the way I always did them. And I mean, it didn't mean anything. I didn't get any more money. I didn't get any recognition. In fact, sometimes people would, uh, would screw with me a little bit, but that's okay. I didn't care. I had a few years till I could retire. And then when I had four years left on the job, um, I got assigned because of Bob Jura and, uh, Fred Gannam to the bosses and DEA had never really gone along with this. I don't, no, if they've done it anywhere else in the country, then I don't know it. But you're the only one most I've ever your heard other of. agencies do. FBI, IRS, all of them have agents that they send over to be special assistants, because then then you have your own personnel there. I mean, I I'm, I was being paid by DEA. I was an agent, so finally they let me do it, and I went over there, and I spent my last four years as a special assistant U.S. attorney, and. What does that mean? So let everybody know, because there's the United States attorney, which is a political appointee, um, but then you have the assistant United States attorneys, all mo mostly career people. What is a special assistant U.S. attorney? You were given a commission as a federal prosecutor, but your pay 
and benefits emanate from the agency that you're employed by. They do it with the Coast Guard. Um, Ron DeSantis, our governor, I believe, was a special assistant U.S. attorney. And um, Does it restrict the types of cases you do? No. No. So you basically could carry the same caseload as a regular AUSA? I did. Okay. I did. Did grand jury, did everything the same. There wasn't anything any different. I was um, in the narcotics section, obviously. So my primary focus was was always drugs. Uh, but I did get some gun cases, you know, and stuff related so to So what is the theory behind allowing sworn agents, even though they're lawyers, sworn agents to go over and basically they're losing a body? I mean, they're losing you as an agent. But now you're over at the U.S. Attorney's Office. What is the theory behind taking agents and making them special AUSAs? Well, it's kind of a win-win for everyone. DEA has some of their own people there, their own person there that they can talk to and who understands DEA and understands the way things go in DEA. Same thing with the Coast Guard or the FBI or ATF. You have your own guy inside there that can – and your loyalty is going to be with the agency that, that you work for, obviously. Um, and nobody's asked you to do anything wrong, so that's not a, a, ever a question. But you can focus on and, the and cases. The US, right. I can focus on on cases that maybe the U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't have enough manpower to do. And, and like when I was stationed in Georgia the second time, the uh, Gwinnett County prosecutor, we convinced him to, to uh, detail an assistant district attorney over to our strike force, and we got the U.S. Attorney's Office to – uh, designate him as a Salsa special AUSA. Yeah. And, yeah. and so he, you know, any cases we had in Gwinnett County, he handled them. And that way the, and the benefit to the County was they shared an asset sharing when it came to, to season their But properties. it also offloaded the workload from the U S attorney's office because they didn't have to take one of their AUSAs right. and spread them out and cover the other cases. Absolutely. I, I mean, they don't have enough AUSAs, especially in a place like Miami. I mean, you're, You'd go in. It would be like being in drunk court in a big city. You know, you go into into magistrate's court on a Monday morning in Miami, and Steve, you can verify this. Here's a guy they caught over the weekend coming through the airport with a half a pound of heroin. Here's another guy they caught on a on a boat with a, you know 500 pounds of coke. Here's a here's another guy with you know a ton of weed. I mean, it was crazy down yeah, here. Ridiculous. Days. I mean, <laughs> it really was. It really uh, unbelievable. I had two. I had two cases with over a thousand kilos each, totally separate. I was litigating as one AUSA. I think it was a South at the time. One uh, out of the whole floor of narcotic guys, and I had two over a thousand pounds each that I was litigating at the same time. Well, let's talk about something crazy, and it's the the name of the gang is crazy too. Because when I first heard it, I'm going, I remember it, but then my first thought was, I'm a guy. So my first thought when I heard this, like, oh, this is cool, but it's the Booby Boys. Oh, the Booby Boys, yeah, yeah, yeah I sure do and know that one. For you, for you perverts out there, Booby, we're not referring to the female anatomy; we're referring to the nickname of a guy named Kenneth Booby Williams. So this, this one though, uh, let's talk about your involvement in this because this isn't just a toss, you know, this is just a, a throwaway line here. I mean, these guys were responsible at one time, right? 35 murders, this gang. We, cl we had 16 murders as overt acts in the conspiracy count. You didn't even need overt acts for a drug conspiracy, but we did. Uh, we always put them in if we have them. Uh, and I think if, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, it was, Around 35 or so, or maybe more, homicides, when the case was finally over with, that the Miami-Dade police were able to close the books on. Um, and I, 
I, I got involved with it, Doug, because I, I used to be a member of the PBA, and they had a bar, and we go over there after work all the well, time. Okay, the, Miami it's not the Professional Bowlers Association, so tell everybody <laughs> no. what PBA is. The Police Benevolent Association. Which is it's, equivalent uh, to a bar, yes. Oh, equivalent they had to a nice bar. bar. They had a nice police. restaurant. Yeah. yeah, they did have a nice bar. And so I, I became friends with this uh, guy. He was in robbery first, and he's the one I, I became friends with him. He had a $3 million, um, and I'm digressing a little just to, to give you the background how I got into the movie, boys. He had a $3 million armed robbery of titanium jet engine blades from a company that only had one night watchman right off 36th Street in um, right by the airport. Attached, it was actually right attached to the border of the airport. And what his informant or where he was getting his information is that it was stolen by drug traffickers to sell to Colombians for their jets. So he asked me if I would get involved. So I talked to the assistant U.S. attorney, Dick Gregory, my guy, and he goes, yeah, we'll get involved. But I had to bring the FBI in on for the um, interstate, was interstate shipment for the armed robbery, the theft. So we did. And then uh, we started developing informants who was a drug dealer. And I, he was telling us, yeah, they were they're going to sell it to uh, to the Colombians and trade it for, for, for this and that. And it, was, it was two brothers that did it. And they had a whole gang that they did it with. So we knew who the one main guy was. So myself, uh, we took the informant and we put, it's called a Nagra recorder. They used to use those in the film industry, that the reel-to-reel. We put it in his boot and ran two microphones up and had him under his shirt. And we had him taped there. And we send him into the warehouse. And he's there with everybody and all that. And then we wait about 30 minutes. And then myself and a Miami-Dade robbery guy and another agent, it was three or four. It might have been four of us. Just, I didn't really trust him that much. We go walking in, and I do the same thing I told you I had done earlier. Introduced all of us and said, well, the reason I'm here is because you're going to be hearing a lot about it. We're going to put you in federal prison because we know you were behind this $3 million armed robbery, these jet engine blades, and it's not fair that you don't know who we are. And we talked to him, and he says, well, well, you don't know me. That's crazy. So I said, well, what's your phone number? And he gives us a phone number. <laughs> That's not listed to him. He goes, oh, yeah, I use that's my phone. I use it all the time. Three or four of those those kind of things, right? And I says, well, have a nice day, and we'll be talking to you. And it was three or four other things he told us. We leave. He goes out and grabs everybody around, and in English, he's telling them, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. They know everything that I did in that armed robbery. They know everything. They knew this. They knew that. Da, 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 da. Oh, my God. I don't know what I'm going to do. What do you guys think? Da, 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 da. And it came out. And we played it at his trial. He got 14 years. He was convicted. <laughs> of three, And they got all but just a handful of the titanium jet engine blades back. So Jeff and I, I mean, the DEA. They hey, wait were a minute. Traffickers. I got a bigger question to ask. Did they decide to hire more than one old night watchman to guard $3 million worth of titanium? I don't know. I, that I can't tell you about. But uh, so. they had some. In, it sounded like they had some inside information. But anyway, so we got almost all of them back. Uh, just about a handful of them missing. And they might have dropped them. Who knows? But anyway, I mean, so everybody was happy at the end of the day. And, uh, and so Jeff and I became really good buddies. And we'd, you know, be drinking and tap, tap one another on the back. The mutual self-appreciation association when you have a couple of drinks. He used to drink Jack Daniels in a shot all the time. He's a great guy, too. Great homicide detective. So anyway, so he comes to me later. He transferred from robbery over to homicide and asked me if I'd help him with the booby boys. I said, sure, why not? 
And uh, so I did. And we did it. The same thing, historical conspiracy case. Booby was caught in Atlanta. The marshals caught him. Mike Moran, one of the best U.S. marshals. You remember Mike, don't you, Steve? Mike Moran, the best U.S. marshal for finding fugitives. Uh, there is. He was just fantastic. He's retired now. Anyway, they find Booby and they arrest him in Georgia. He And there was a box they had and it had fingerprints on it. And they got his fingerprints off of it. And we, we had a bunch of arrests. We found different seizures around the country that had been effectuated and stuff seized and they had fingerprints on them. And we were able to compare those prints and possibly identify different members of the group we indicted. And that trial went six weeks and we had put on a hundred witnesses. Wow. So, well, so we glossed over a lot of stuff. Let me rewind you a little bit because we went from flash to bang pretty quick here. Um, yeah. The, uh, how long did this investigation take from the time you, you got that information, you started working it till you actually went to trial? How long did that take? I want to, I could be wrong, but I, I, my mind's telling me it was about a year and a half. Okay. Maybe a little more. So, I mean, it's, it's not really long. I mean, but, it, but I mean, you're, when we're talking something this complex and murders and stuff. So did you know what it was when you got into it? Did you know it was going to be, were they good for murders already that you knew of, or how much of this became new information as you worked it? Well, they, uh, Miami Dade was pretty solidly after him, pretty solidly after him. And they knew it. They just couldn't put the pieces together in a manner that would allow them to charge him with some of the murders. So we went after him for the drugs with murders as being part of it. And then the witnesses were coming out of the woodwork. Why? Because they all thought the, they all thought they were going to be uh, headed to uh, federal prison or what? Yeah, well, I had one guy tell me, um, he said, I want to tell you something, man. You feds don't play. He said, I've been in more trouble in the state. I don't even know. He says, they sentenced me to life. I said, ah, no big deal. I'll be out in a little bit. He said, I got in federal prison and they give me my papers. And on the papers, they stamp your release date. And on mine, they stamp deceased. So I'm cooperating. <laughs> I want a rule 35, which is a sentence reduction. Yep. And he did. We had one guy, myself and a sergeant from the homicide thing, picked up to bring him over a witness because he had to have two people when you move them. So we go over and get this guy. As we're walking over, he says, oh, yeah, sorry. Remember the other day we're talking about some homicide? He goes, yeah. He said, well, I was quiet to you, I know. I said, but I was there and I saw it. So walking over for him to testify in the booby boys, they solved three murders. Wow. He was there. He said, I didn't, I didn't pull the trigger on but I was there and I helped him get rid of the bodies. Jeez. I, I mean, that, that, that is the kind of stuff that, that happened. We went all over the place. We went to, you know, prisoners. We were interviewing Prisoners everywhere. Well, this is how well, violent this, South Florida was back in the 1980s. I mean, it was just, it really was a wild west when people refer to it it's like that. During the trial, they had a lady that would be there every day, and she lost her son to them. And she'd tell me, she'd religiously come up to me every day, and she said, well, I went out over the weekend, I talked to my son at his, at his gravesite, and told him we're going to do this right, and just to hang in there, and he'll be able to rest. Wow. Then when we finally convicted everybody, she said, thank you for allowing my son to rest. Yeah. Wasn't there, I'm going to go tell him now. Wasn't there a police officer indicted and convicted on this? Yes, he got 15 years. He would stop cars for him, and either take the money or the drugs, whichever it was. They bought drugs from him, he'd take the money they just paid him and take it back to him, or he'd take go get the drugs and take the money back to him. Jeez. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Um, one of our homicide detectives was in the academy with him, too. So it happens. I mean. I think I read that uh, didn't the wasn't there a significant drop in the murder rate in Miami once these guys were convicted, taken off the street? Yes, there was. 
Yes, there was. That's pretty significant. Movie was on America's Most Wanted four times. Jeez. Unbelievable. Well, with a nickname like that, you think he'd be easy to find, but uh He was young. He wasn't very old. Yeah. He got life, no parole. Well, and yeah, this this all happened, uh, at least part of the stuff I'm reading, like between 1990 and 1998, these guys are doing this uh, $85, $90 million worth of coke, 12 different states, 36 different murders, or 35, yeah, 35 murders to establish operations. I mean, you, you think about cases like this, and this is what I, I kind of want to start talking about what you're doing now, because you look at cases like this and you go... If there weren't, if it wasn't for people like you, if it wasn't for people like this homicide detective, if it wasn't for people saying we're staying on this like a dog with a bone until we get this stuff done, how many other guys like Booby Williams are out there operating that haven't been touched yet? There's no way of counting. There's so many of them. And so we think about, to your point, Steve, you know, you clear, you make one arrest, you clear, you get a bunch of guys um, arrested. You can clear many, many, many cases, you know, just by working the right thing. And this is kind of goes to the advantage of rather than just doing targeting one guy and trying to do one operation like Lou Velozzi talked about when we had him on episode four. Instead, they did yeah. a storefront where they brought multiple people in and made multiple arrests. So um, getting this gang off the street, you remember how many people total you guys ended up taking off with the gang? Oh, no, I don't remember the exact amount. I think we had seven at trial. Okay. If I remember correctly. Um, I've seen an article where the jury convicted 11. 11. Okay. It was 11 at trial. 7 11. Hey, you know, that's that's a that's a nice little convenience store. 7 11. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Hey, the more the merrier. Glad we took more guys off the street. Well, they used to tell us in law school all the time if any of you dummies could do math, you'd be in medical school. Yeah. (laughs) That's the truth. (laughs) You could do chemistry and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about that too, because you you said you did your last four years with the. U.S. Attorney's Office as a special assistant U.S. Attorney. So when you got when you got done, um, you got your law degree, you got all this experience. What did you decide to do? Well, I, I mean, I just stayed with with uh, with DEA until I, my last four years, and I did that. And then I wanted to be an assistant U.S. Attorney, and they hired me because I got a, I got a notice from DEA. Uh, You're going to be 57 in February, and after that date, we don't want to see you in our zip code. Because we have a mandatory retirement age in DEA of 57. So they were already warning me, and I was already trying to get hired anyway. So I left in the November uh, before I turned 57, and they hired me, and I started in January as a regular assistant U.S. attorney. So no no such restrictions in the U.S. attorney's office? Mandatory retirement age? No, there was big big restrictions. Um, I could only be paid the difference between my salary and what they were paying me. Uh, and for one whole year, after, I still gave my retirement, which is, you know, way less than I made working. But for one whole year, I brought home $39 clear every two weeks. <laughs> it's not so, worth I the mean, aggravation. But, well, there's no price tag you can put. But I got my retirement plus that. Uh, but for the job that I was doing, but it wasn't their fault. That was a... Um, a directive that passed by Jimmy Jimmy Carter, I believe, was no double dipping. But that office did everything they could for me. So I stayed five more years, and the, the salary went up a little. Now, is there a mandatory retirement age with the U.S. Attorney's Office? No. No, there's not. Okay. No, there's not. Mm-hmm. But with, with, the, with the restraint, and there were, no, it was, uh, there were no pay raises. There was nothing. It was a freeze on everything. Uh, it was when uh, 
uh, President Obama was in office. And so I didn't know how long I was going to do. And I just figured, well, I'm not getting any younger. So when I was, I think I was 62 when I said, all right, you know, I've got 34 years with the Department of Justice. That was the best nine years. I mean, it's something pretty neat about standing up and saying, good morning, Your Honor, William Leonard Athis on behalf of the United States of America. I mean, it, it, it still makes me, I loved it, loved working there. Steve, you said that one time too, that was a powerful thing when somebody looked at a search warrant or they looked at an indictment, it said the United States of America versus. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a powerful statement. It's like the whole country is looking at you. We've selected you and you are going to be our target. Yes, I'm Special Agent uh, William Ath. You know, Athis. I'm just here to tell you, I'm going to put your ass in jail. Thank you very much. I love that. I'll be back to see you. <laughs> I love it. I, I mean, I, I don't know what caused me to do that, but it worked once, so I figured, why not try it and again? And look, it cleared some homicide. Well, yeah, you got the confessions. You know, you, you cleared. You got a three million dollar case. You know, yeah. To your credit, it, I mean, he was he went to trial, and he, I mean, he was convicted right away. Well, I'm got a ton of years. <laughs> you know, so. But he, but, and I just I want to restate the importance of of because Lenny's playing down his career here. He's being very humble about the things he did. I know um, we're having to draw shit out of him. Like he glossed over. Oh yeah, the booby boys. Yeah, we convicted them. Well, let's talk a little bit about yeah. that. But I mean, here we are. You know, so Escobar got a it still gets attention today. I'm I'm actually flying to Boston tomorrow to tape a new uh, documentary. I don't know how many documentaries you can do on this guy, but the narco series apparently one more. Fun. Yeah, obviously. But the fact that I mean. The, our country invaded Panama to get this guy, and then you've got the responsibility. You and Steve have the responsibility of convicting this guy in court. It, it, it's it's coming across here as just another day in the office, which is really what it is. But the the monumental effect that that have because of your of the trust that that Ken Kennedy and the DEA and DOJ had in you to bring this guy to trial to get him convicted and sentenced. To where you know he's never going to be a free man again. You can't be overlooked. And then, you know, like like uh, Morgan just said, we're having to pull the information out of you about the Booby Boys. And and I'm reading an article how the murder rate in Dade County went down because of the the case that you made on these guys. So these and these are just two cases out of a long long career that you got to work on. I know we could probably have you on here for another three or four hours talking about other cases, which we won't do to you. But it's it's. There's so many freaking heroes out there. There's so many heroes out there that never get any attention because it wasn't made into a TV series or it wasn't made into whatever, you know? So uh, and I, I didn't get to say this at the beginning, but just what a true honor to have you on here. We've been friends for years and years and uh, since 88. Well, you know, what's well, a true honor because he's a trooper, Murph. He's a trooper at heart. <laughs> Who had the sense to get a real job. <laughs> oh, I still remember what I said. Good morning, sir. I'm, Trooper First Class William L.A., this is the Maryland State Police. You've been stopped for exceeding the post of 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. May I please see your driver's license registration, sir? <laughs> and and then, you know, warning or ticket or whatever. I know. I, I love doing the same uh, thing. Trooper Wright, Kansas High Patrol, man. The reason you, I love doing it, too, because you don't say, do you know? But I, some of those, too, it was fun, too. You say, do you know why I stopped you? Hmm. And I had one I guy. I never said that. No, I I only tried that a couple times because it always backfired because one guy says, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and he wanted to drive off. He's like, pal, it doesn't work that way. He was kind of funny. But I would always be up front. Yeah. The reason I stopped you is for doing this. And, you know, the fun part is they'd want to argue. And it's like, there is no argument. There's a ticket coming. I mean, just let's 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 settle this as fast as we can. But anyway, let's not digress before I ask you a couple other uh, quick questions here. You uh, You did that, but then 
you now have your own law practice, your own law firm, uh, because I know because I was on your webpage looking at your background, which you sandbagged us on a lot of shit, by the way, mm -hmm. typical of these guests who are humble, you, know, you sandbag stuff. So when you got done with all of that, I guess it was just natural. You'd already got your law degree. You'd been practicing law. So you went, you started up your own little law firm. Kind of what I was interested in is looking for people <clears throat> who wanted to cooperate federally because I, I just, I love f federal court. I really, I'm comfortable there. I like it. State court is a circus very often. Mm -hmm. It's a shit show. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to get these people who, who want to cooperate and make sure they do it the right way. They don't lie. They don't overstate things. And, and that's, you know, kind of what I wanted to do. And I, and to some extent I've been able to do that. And, um, uh, and I enjoy it. And I also do some administrative things. And, and I thought I was really going to have a problem <clears throat> being a defense attorney. I guess because I, I would anticipate that people would do the things the way I was taught to do them and the way that uh, the office, the U.S. Attorney's Office, requires them to be done, Department of Justice. And, and I've come across situations where things aren't done that way in state system. Um, I've had mostly federal stuff. I've uh, represented people in Puerto Rico in the uh, eastern district of the state of Washington and Miami, Palm Beach, and uh, Roward County. Let me ask you about that because you said you wanted to only represent people who were going to cooperate. Is that because you made a conscious decision not to be adversarial against the government, in other words, to take cases to trial uh, and litigate the cases, or or did you do some of that too? No, no, I would do that. Um, I actually haven't had a, I haven't had a trial in federal court since I became a uh, defense attorney a number of years, several years ago, 2014. Uh, I haven't had a trial. I've had a number of guilty pleas, but I, you know, I, I, I would take somebody to trial, but I would never come in and 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 try to fabricate. Oh no, not or, not suggesting or, that. All I'm saying is when I say it's the adversarial process, it's it is the adversarial process. It. it I have a trial coming up in state court with a with a person I'm defending, a professional, and um, we're gonna we're gonna fight it because I just don't think that this particular person is guilty. So it's a state case. Um, so it would, I mean, it depends. I mean, I have a nice pension, so I, you know, I I take what I want. If I don't want to take it, I don't take it. And then I try to help some people with other things too, some administrative things. Um. I've got a couple people having me do like corporate investigations where there's things amiss in, in within the company and I'll do those <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and t I take enough to keep me busy and I'll always be doing something. I'm just not going to sit around and watch the paint dry. Do you do civil stuff also? Some, not, not a whole lot because I don't really have a lot of expertise in it, but I do. It depends on what it is. I may co-associate myself with somebody, um, to get it done so it's done correctly, because it's most important to me to make sure that it's it's being done the right way. Right. Funny you should mention about civil, Murph. Are you having a problem with your pool? No, no, it's doing real well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm thinking more like the State Department of Revenue here in Florida, but uh, we'll see how that goes. See how that goes. My son, my middle son, has a good friend he went to high school with who's actually a lawyer now down in Florida, but his basically all he specializes in is in property damage, water claims. You know, things happen, condos, pipes, bursts, whatever else. That's all. Um, he just, he just, they basically do paperwork and settle stuff. And he's like, eh, you know, it's a living. Well, insurance companies are horrible. Insurance companies are just horrible. I can't stand insurance companies. And you got to have them. I mean, but but they just they they have the crew that sells you the insurance, and then it's an, it's like Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde is the crew when you go to put in a claim. Yeah, they want to try and deny you. 
the, the yeah, insurance. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, well, let's do this. Let's kind of bring this to a head and talk just real quickly about um, now that you've done all of this stuff, what has been the most satisfying part of your career for you? I mean, you've, you have done more things in a career than what most people get a chance to. I mean, you'd start off at the highest of all levels, which is a trooper with the Maryland State Police, you know, um, you, you go down maybe just a half a step to DEA, but that's that's better than some of the other agencies. But I mean, but you do, you, you're a cadet, you're, you're a state trooper out on the road, you're a narcotics detective, um, you're DEA, you're, you, you work these big historical conspiracy cases, you go to law school, you become an attorney, you're doing all this work now for you. What's been the best part about your career? Which, which part did you enjoy the most? You know, I, I've been asked that question a number of times, and I have to be honest, and I'm going to tell you something in its own individual way. It'll be almost like which one of your children do you love the most? Because I, I have parts of each of my three major uh, careers that I absolutely cherish and will for the rest of my life. I still belong to the Alumni Association from the State Police, and I just went to a reunion um, a few months ago over on the west coast of Florida. I drove over there and stayed overnight and went to it and saw people uh, I hadn't seen for many, many years from the Maryland State Police. What's Maryland, in coming, what's Maryland doing coming to Florida? I thought you had Ocean City and the Eastern Shore and St. Mary's, a lot of pretty places up there. Why are you guys in Florida? There's a lot of them living down here. <laughs> <laughs> but the taxes are a little cheaper. There are none. Yeah. And, you know, the motto in Maryland is if you can dream of it, we'll tax it. <laughs> Yeah, the People's Republic of Maryland. My wife and I have been looking at a move, and it's like we're our kids live in Keatsville, not too just right outside Frederick there. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, just south of Boonesboro there. If you remember where that area okay. is, yeah, yeah, sure do. And uh, it's like, oh, you move up here by us. It's like, nah, I'll move up to the line. I am not moving over the line. There's no yeah. way I'm going to be in Maryland. Now, West Virginia is not too far away from there. I, West Virginia is an awfully nice state. It really is. Murph has been petitioning to keep me out of the state because we've actually looked at Charlestown and Harpers Ferry, you know, that area right there, because it's like 20 minutes from our house. So, yep. I'll bet you Western Maryland would join West Virginia tomorrow if they got an opportunity. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can tell you, too, the dividing line, it's going to be somewhere east of Frederick. They'll just cut the state right there and then move it over. So, hey, well, look, um, dude, I got to tell you that what, what I mean, just when you sit back and think about all the stuff you've done, you're right. It's, it's, it's hard to say, yeah, this one was better than that, but it's like, you've got something to pull from each one. So, you know, first of all, just as an American, I want to thank you for what you did because look, guys like Noriega, I don't think that case didn't get the publicity it should have. Like you were saying, Steve, I mean, they, they mm -hmm. want to talk about Pablo and stuff, but you know, this, this guy was like you say, killing Americans, taking money from everybody, facilitating the transfer, uh, the transnational shipments of dope and coke and everything else that was coming into the United States. He was just not good for society. And the fact that you convicted him, the fact, where is, is he in ADX? Is he over in Supermax? He, no, no, he did, uh, he did his time here and he went to France because they indicted him over there. He did some time there. Then he went to Panama and he was under house arrest because of the murder of Dr. Spadafora, whose body was, headless body was dumped in crossed the line in Costa Rica, and then he died of cancer. Oh, you know what? So I knew that. I knew – I forgot he, that. He's yeah. gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well – He's gone. Good riddance, you know? That's He was guilty of everything he was uh, charged with and a whole lot more, I could tell you that. I remember one time I was sitting in the lockup with him. We're showing him Discovery, and he's going through some photos, and, uh, and as he's finishing with him, he's giving back to me, and, and his uh, investigator was there. So we're speaking in English, and he's over there, and I, I remember what the town was, some town in Panama. I go, well, where is that town? And without blinking, he doesn't even realize. He goes, oh, that's about two and a half – in perfect English. That's about two and a half hours out of 
Panama. Oops. And he looks up and just starts laughing because his English was so good. No hablas <laughs> so inglés, señor. Uh, yeah. hey, he wh- spoke English. What happened to all the, all his assets? Seized. Uh, what we we see some Panama got a lot of it and all that. Any idea what the value was? Had no, to be in the billions, no, I have no right? Idea. Had to be well. He had several millions. I mean, at least not more. I know he had. I forget how much money when the army hit his house. How much money he had in there in the safe and all that. He had like tremendous amounts. Had to be of money. at least sixty-three million, Murph. I know that from yeah. talking to George John. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. That's true. When I was with the SEALs, they they found one of his when they put a laws rocket through one of his jets or one of his helicopters or something. He had a, a map with four X's on it. So they told me to, they hooked me up with the SEALs, and I was in good shape then, but. Man, those guys are unbelievable. They're, studs, They're aren't they? fantastic. Yeah. And so we go out on a Navy gunboat. We left. I went down there and they gave me all this military stuff and and everything. And I get on and and I'm thinking, well, you know, they're probably, well, you know, another Washington suit, right? So um, so I go and I meet the uh, the noncom who was in charge, and I had two duffel bags. I says, well, sir, I said these are for you. And he and he opens up, and I big bottles of wine of uh, rum in each one of them because they couldn't get anything right and i said i figured you'd figure out the appropriate time what to do with this he goes well thank you very much <laughs> so, I went, so he took my those. language <laughs> now yeah there you so go I took those and he, he took them off then we're out on the gunboat i mean this gunboat I mean, it had automatic grenade launchers 20 millimeters 50 cows um everything else and we're and we're going to this place we're going through the panama canal we had to go about um I don't know, five and a half hours out of Panama City. And the morning we're going through the Panama Canal is when they just opened up the Panama Canal to traffic for the first time. So as we're going, this cruise ship is coming through. And there must have, we got this big, huge American flag off our stern. And we're all there, you know, in camos. And, and there must have been 5,000 flash bulbs went off on that on that light. And, just, and everybody's yelling, you know, hey, you know, and it, was, it kind of made you feel patriotic. Oh, yeah. It was neat. And then uh, we went down and we went to all these spots to see what was there to see if, you know, he had another, another, um, cash or something operation. No, he had allowed the Colombians in the Darien province to set up a cocaine lab. And they did. That was one of the things he was paid for. And so we went to all of them, but we couldn't, we couldn't find anything. It would, um, at either any of them, but it was still a neat experience being with them. Yeah. That's one through the Panama Canal. Not too many people can say that. I mean, we're sitting there having a beer. They let us say, okay, you can have one beer, you can have two beers. Of course, the beers were like 30-ounce things in this place, and they had uh, uh, Isla del Rey uh, was, I think, the name, if I remember correctly, the name of the island. We're, so we're I'm sitting there with a couple of the SEALs, and, and we're having our beers, and one of the SEALs is sitting there with an M4 on the table, with a, and each one of the, of the guys I was with had grenade launchers underneath the barrel, and uh, he's, got, he's got one in the tube. So, so I said, well, we're going to get out of here. All right. And we had our handguns and, and, uh, but it was, this, this is kind of wild. Yeah. It's neat. It's, it's different going in those countries. You really appreciate what the United States of America is capable of when you work with special operators like that. And, uh, you know, and you know, there's a lot of, a lot of good people in a lot of different organizations. So, so they were the best of the best, man. Yeah. I agree. And so were troopers too. So I kind of put troopers in this kind of on the same. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I've got to get one more dig in on Murph with Troopers. Well, hey, look, Lenny, we have kept you uh, quite a bit of time. Yeah. But again, this is me saluting you, saying thank you for your service, sir, to our great country. We we really, it's like Murph says, we're honored. Anytime we get people on like you who have, you know, the, the challenges, let me leave you with, with people like you. You are tough to interview. And it's not because you don't want to talk to us. It's that you don't want to talk about the things you did. You'll talk to us about the weather, this. Getting people like you to talk about what they did because you think you're bragging or you think that, hey, you know, that's the toughest part. And that's that to, mm -hmm. to me, that's that's an indication of your character is that um, you're not there to brag. I mean, you're not here to just, oh, here's what I did. And this is how I did. Everybody we've talked to without to a person has been tough to get information out of because they're just very humble about the work that they did. So uh, I just tell you sincerely, really appreciate what you did and allowing you to share your story, you know, we'll share it with everybody else, but just, you know, you're a part of history, whether you want to, whether you want to accept that or not, you're a part of history and putting Manuel Noriega out of action, take dismantling that whole operation. You did, you did not just the nation a service, you did the world a service. And, you know, for that, we thank you, Trooper. Absolutely. Trooper First Class. Thank you. I had a lot of great time. I got to bring both the uh, Rodriguez or Whaler brothers back to the States in my handcuffs. There you I go. I got to do that too, so. I mean, it's just Gilberto, like story after up, story. Gilberto, we picked up at Guantanamo Bay, and then uh, Miguel, I actually went to Columbia. And you remember Keith Curtis? Oh, yeah. You know, Keith was down there, and he met me at the airport. And then the next day, I flew to this military base, and they brought Miguel in, and and we flew him back in a Learjet. And uh, so I got involved in that. Just well, just about the time I was going to the U.S. Attorney's Office, they got me involved in that case. And they, they pled guilty, and it worked out well, too. They, they were probably on par with Pablo and the boys, although I don't believe they were as violent as he was. Well, we'll have to make that the subject of, a, of another episode, because this is the fourth time we've tried to wind this one up, and then there's yet <laughs> okay, another right. yeah, story. Exactly. No, 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 this, <laughs> is, this is good stuff. <laughs> People are going to say, well, okay, really, we're bringing this to a close. Well, wait a minute, but I brought these guys back, and then there was this guy. So don't turn us off if you're listening to our podcast. Don't turn it off, because there might you, be another case is, coming up. You <laughs> need to listen to the very end, the very right. end. So, hey, you know what we'll have to do? We'll have to rethink that, too. Because, well, not rethink. We'll have to revisit that, too, because talking about that case— that whole thing right there, just bringing them back in handcuffs, everything you did, that is a whole episode right there about the stuff they did, what they did, how they did it. And anytime you say somebody's on par with Pablo, there's a story behind that we'll, that we'll have to get down to. So you need to save that story for us. We're yeah, Customs Customs was really the main player in that. Um, DEA was there, but— That's uh, okay. We'll, we'll talk about it. And look, the biggest thing we got to thank you for is that you've just spent like three hours with us and— you know, you got to think now, uh, who am I going to bill for this time? You know, what case does it go to? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm just me. I just do my thing. So anyway, but I really appreciate it. Nice meeting you, Morgan, uh, especially since uh, you got the salute down. Oh, and that's, you got to get the salute right. It's not just one of these little wimpy salutes. No, no, it's not this or this. It's or, not this. It's, it's 45 right degree angle down do at the tip of the eye right there. You know, boom, boom. Yeah. All right. I got, I got the salute from Morgan right here. There's your salute. Oh, look at this. <laughs> Oh, Steve, you know, I hadn't seen you for a while. What's pushing your head up through your hair? <laughs> Let me tell you, good Lord only made a, a, a very finite number of heads that don't require hair. The rest of you guys, he covered your heads. Yeah. Yeah. Look at this. Look, see, I got plenty of hair. Uh, I actually <laughs> had to go get my hair cut today and I still have so much. I don't know what to do with it. So yeah, I got to get mine cut too. Look like, you, both of y'all look like damn hippies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This this is now we are bringing this to the close. You don't go anywhere. You hang on, Lenny, Steve, okay. whatever. You know, you just go push your head up through your hair. And then everybody else, <laughs> stay tuned for the debrief.
Well, I thought that I thought what he did with Manuel Noriega, I mean, you know, going all over the place, tracking down assets. Obviously, he didn't get any of George Young's money back and neither did George. By the way, <laughs> they did. They just released that episode famous without the fortune. I think it's four or five episodes. We talked about it on Hulu and stuff. So mm-hmm. he talks about losing some of his money. But yeah, what I thought the booby boys was about and what it ended up being about were two totally different yeah. things. <laughs> I mean, what a violent group of individuals, man. They, you know, the, what did he when say, they were 30 taking, murders. Yeah. And when they were taken out, the, the murder rate in, in Miami and Metro Dade went down just from one organization. That's pretty spe- uh, significant. I start to say specific. And it's so specific well, it's very too. specific and significant. It's specifically significant because you got rid of those guys. And like you said, the homicide rate goes down. Try saying that fast really you know, three times. I don't think times. so. I'm a yeah, well, I can't talk that fast. Have some more coffee. But hey, guys, no, I mean, this is great stuff, too. We got some more good stuff lined up for you. We were just talking about some cases, uh, you know, that may be coming up. But as with always, we want to thank you guys for supporting us. Uh, If you like it, head on over to Spotify and Apple. Hit those five stars. It's Magic, David Copperfield, David Blaine, you know, you name it, Penn and Teller. We don't know how it works. It just does, but it really helps us. And we appreciate the comments that you you guys do leave for us. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We'll update it as we go. You know, we put our pictures, we put books up there. By the way, too, um, we didn't say a whole lot about uh, the previous episode, Guy Nossinger, you know, that you brought to us, the 80-year-old cold case. Um, Jeff Regal sent us some pictures, so I posted it up there. So we got some pictures on our website of you guys down in Micronesia, you know, some of the gang and everything. And so just some great stuff, pictures of the actual Hawaii Clippers. So really looks good. So guys, make sure you go on over there. Also follow us on that thing on the interwebs called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you feel like a pause for the cause, paypal.com, just use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. And Steve, as always, where do you got to be times three? Hey, check us out on Patreon. It's, uh, you're going to hear things that you're not going to hear anywhere else. We get a little more into uh, our personal opinions on things, whereas on the podcast here, we want our guests to tell their story. We want you to hear their story. So uh, come over there and, and you know what? Just give us a try. If you get tries for a month, if you don't like us and you can tell us that you can flip us off or, you know, you can cancel or you C, can increase C and word, go up to you, I'm interrupting you because I told you not to use that C word ever again. <laughs> Never use yeah, the what, C word. I haven't listened to you since we started. Why do you think I'm going to start now? Because <laughs> you're a man and I'm a man and we don't listen to each other. That's right. Uh, we never ask directions or anything. So uh, just give us a shot over there. To come and see what we have to offer. There's so much good stuff. We've got, we're rating the Narcometer on a, on a crime-related movie every month. We're doing, war, uh, we're doing the, uh, you can't make this shit up. We've got 991, <laughs> whatever, it's 911. What's your emergency? I mean, the, Murph, the they took 911 away from Murph because he could find nine on the phone dial. He just couldn't find 11. So no more <laughs> calling emergencies. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of true. So uh, thank God it's for the digital phones, right? But uh, d- just give us a shot. See what you think. Yeah, it, that's why they have voice commands. I don't want to say it because if I do the uh, S-I-R-I thing, my phone will call. So, hey, yeah. by the way, real quick, funny, we used to do that with Amazon where you could say, hey, Alexa, do this, do that. We're on a Zoom call one day and a guy was talking about, hey, he's got, you know, he just, uh, he thought about ordering this book. So on the Zoom call, we knew what his trigger word would go. Hey, Alexa, order 10,000 copies of, you oh. know, whatever else. And you hear it, Alexa going, okay, ordering 10,000 copies. <laughs> and he goes, you son of a bitch. Anyway. <laughs> so you have to change your trigger word. You got to change it to something nobody recognizes. Anyway, we got off, we got off tangent there. So uh, by the way, yeah, go support us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Ton of stuff there. In, a, in the last 911 episode, we did about the piece of shit New York cop and his fiance who 
basically yeah. killed their son by allowing him to freeze to death and then setting it mm. up. I'll tell you what. Um, uh, by the way, we just gave away the ending, but that's okay. Just go listen to it. That one got a lot of comments too. And we don't hold back. Uh, we don't care if you're cops, firefighters, you know, good people, bad people, politicians. Man, you do stuff like this, um, we're going to cover it. So anyway, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where you got to be. Hey, where else you got to be too is we've got not only that, but hey, guys, you got to go join our fans page run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. So just go to Game of Crimes fans. You can go to Facebook, type in Game of Crimes fans, answer a couple easy questions, even if you get sort of close she's gonna let you in we get a lot of good discussions going on over there so do that uh we're, we're actually ordering it to you because if we don't sandy said she's gonna have us whacked uh you know her name's oh, yeah. in a vow you know and there's a lot of funny stuff in there too and and you know on our podcast if you like what we're hearing here tell your friends about us you know we'd like to expand our listener base here so share, share one it. tell one Share one, go. tell one. That's right. Tell one, share one. E either way, just get somebody hooked up on the podcast. And by the way, uh, speaking of the podcast, we want to thank you guys for listening to us once again and for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the original, unadulterated, and always funny Game of Crimes. 